Today, I'm wearing a tie, and some of you are like, it must be Christmas, it must be Easter. (laughs) No, it's Reformation Sunday, the 500th anniversary of Reformation Sunday. It's not why I'm wearing a tie. I had a funeral yesterday, and it was laying out, so I figured I'd put that on. But um, (laughs) today actually is Reformation Sunday, and... um, This is the day, 500 years ago, well, it's actually uh, October 31st, but the Sunday closest to the 31st is when churches all over the world remember Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. And uh, we're going to focus on what came out of the Reformation, and I'm going to rely heavily today on one chapter from a book called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. In fact, let me give you a little little history of R.C. and I. We are just really, really good friends. Um, uh, When I was going to school at Northern Illinois University, uh, 1982, I heard the gospel, and I trusted in Christ. I started going to church, and the church I went to Um, brought R.C. Sproul in to do a weekend seminar on the holiness of God. And I have to tell you, in hearing him speak on the holiness of God, it changed my view of God, of my sin, of God's justice, of God's holiness, of God's perfection, and the beauty of the gospel. Right? I, I think uh, a sermon or a series of sermons can do that, can change your life. So then um, a few years passed and I went to another church and I heard really it was the same seminar again by R.C. Sproul. And uh, during the break I went into the bathroom and there he was. And we talked. That's why I say we're really good friends. He, <laughs> he didn't know me from the man in the moon, but I consider him a really good friend from that men's room event. Okay? So um, I purchased the book, The Holiness of God, and I've read through it several times. By the way, before you die, get this book and at least read one chapter. Holy justice. And I think it will, will put the pieces together of, of why the cross had to take place. Okay? Um, let me share, I consider this a troubling event around this book. You know, in the early years of, of Valley Brook, um, we had a men's Bible study. I think it met on Monday nights. And um, we had been studying different books of the Bible, and then Um, I figured everybody needs to be exposed to this book. So I said, we're going to study a book called The Holiness of God. And one guy who had been coming all the time said, I'm not going to come. And I said, well, why not? He said, I'm not interested in that. Um, you're You're not interested in the holiness of God? No, let's study something more practical. 
And, and it really hit me. We're, we're at a place in American Christianity where learning about not just an, an attribute of God, but the essential attribute of God, His holiness, is considered impractical and a waste of time. Um, so that, that's where we are with a lot of people. They, if you offered this as a study, a lot of people would go, now, let's do something more practical. Now, I would say, without a foundational understanding of God's holiness, nothing else in Christianity really makes sense. Hell, judgment, the cross, the gospel, it doesn't make sense until you understand that our God is a holy holy, holy God. Now, in this book, Sproul has a chapter called The Insanity of Luther. And I am, in essence, going to borrow really heavily from this chapter. I think when a, when a preacher uses a, uh, a source like, like a book, you need to say, hey, this is not my material. Um, this, this is found in Sproul's book, the insanity of Luther. Now, you say, Pastor, are, are churches all over the world celebrating uh, Reformation Sunday? No. In many circles, Luther is not a hero. He is an arch villain. In fact, the Pope who was alive during the time of Luther, Pope Leo, uh, said this in response to Luther posting his 95 Theses on the church door. He said, Luther is a drunken German. He will feel different when he's sober. And then uh, when Luther didn't quiet down from the Pope's intimidation, he, he wrote more and he wrote more. And the Pope had to issue a decree. It's called a papal bull. And in the papal bull, he said, Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. So not everybody is thrilled with Martin Luther. Some would say uh, he is the one who not discovered, but recovered the gospel of grace. Okay, it's taught in Scripture, but he is the one who recovered it from layer upon layer upon layer of church tradition and practices that made it seem like you had to earn your way to heaven. Okay? So, so some would say he's a hero for recovering that. Others would say he's an arch-villain because he has split the unity of the church And now we have all these denominations, and he was kind of the starting point of that. Now, while uh, there's people who don't love him for theological reasons, there are other people, and this is where Sproul's chapter comes in, who've tried to evaluate Luther from a psychological perspective. It's always fun to do that 500 years later, you know, pick a historical figure and psychoanalyze him. And uh, some have concluded that he was, not him, but um, Luther, was an insane, neurotic man. All right? Now, 
Let me give you five examples of some of his kind of crazy behavior, but I think you're going to see, as, as Sproul would say, there's a fine line between insanity and genius. Okay? So here are our five examples of why, why some would say he's insane. First, he just lived in great fear of death all the time. Now, we, we don't because we have health care and we have doctors. I mean, back then, think about it. Um, at one point, a third of Europe died of the plague. So death was something that you lived in fear of every day. Now, I shared before, Luther was studying to be a law student, and on his way home, he was in an open field, and a storm came over that field, and a bolt of lightning almost hit him. And he fell to the ground, and he prayed to St. Anne, and he said, if you save me from this, I will become a monk. So he became a monk. Now, um, the bolt of lightning was a near-death experience, but he seemed to be a hypochondriac. Every time he was sick, he thought he was going to die. I'm kind of like that. You know. He suffered from a nervous stomach, kidney stones. Some of you who have had kidney stones are like, oh, it's worse than childbirth. I think the ladies would beg to differ, yeah, right? Um, But he was sure that he was at death's door. Now, his stomach seems to be uh, the topic of a lot of his writings. He, He had a, let's face it, he had a flatulence problem, okay? And his writings are sprinkled with references to his constant belching and breaking wind, okay? In fact, um, you know, the printing press had, had been invented by this time, and everything he wrote spread all over the place. And at one point he said, if I break wind in Wittenberg, they'll hear it in Leipzig. So <laughs> his, his flatulence ties in to his next anxiety, all right? He felt he was the personal target of Satan himself. He felt that Satan, not just a a second-level demon, but Satan himself was after Martin Luther. Now, this, this gets you labeled insane when you think you're important enough that Satan himself is after you. Um, he once wrote about when he was... Uh, in, in the castle, translating the Bible into, into German, he, he wrote about a time when he believed Satan appeared to him and he took an inkwell and threw it at Satan. Now, if you go on a tour of Germany and they take you to the castle, there's the, the freshly painted ink stain on the wall, but uh, there is at least a reference to him throwing an inkwell at Satan. Um, We sang a mighty fortress. Did you notice the reference to Satan in here? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, 
We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Now, you say, how does this tie into his flatulence? Well, he advised his students that an effective way to fight spiritual warfare when Satan attacks you is to break wind at him. All right? So, have you tried it? Um, So, was he crazy thinking that Satan was attacking him? Or... Might Satan actually want to target the man who was fighting all the powers of hell and church and state to rescue the gospel? Maybe Satan was after Luther, right? By the way, if you're a preacher or a teacher of the gospel, and I would even say this, if you are part of a church that holds the cross high and proclaims the gospel, you will come under spiritual attack. Satan does not want the gospel clearly proclaimed. Right? But Luther was really obsessed with Satan. Right? A, uh, a third incident that people point to, to, to say he was insane, is... As a monk, he's training to be a priest, and then he offers his first mass. Now, his father was excited for Luther to become a priest, but when he announced that he was going to become a monk, dad was not too happy, because you can make a lot more money as a lawyer than a priest. But his dad finally got over it, and it was time for him to say his first mass. And uh, his dad was there. So Luther had memorized the liturgy, and he was going through the prayers and and, uh, the the liturgy of the Mass. And when he came to the prayer of consecration, when you hold up the bread and the wine, and the bread and the wine actually transubstantiate, at least this is what he believed, they, they actually become the actual body and blood of Jesus, okay, that's a, that's a Catholic belief, okay, he froze. He couldn't say the prayer of consecration. He ruined the Mass. He embarrassed his father. Later on, he wrote about this, and he said this, at these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, what tongue shall I, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And I am speaking to the living 
eternal and true God. So, so again, here we ask the question, is, is this an example of insanity? Or are we kind of the insane ones who go through communion without even batting an eye, but he is in awe of the holiness of God? I, I wonder if the same people who evaluate Luther might evaluate Isaiah who falls down in the presence of God and says, holy, holy, holy. Right? Fourth example. He stood alone against all the powers of the world. He's called to worms to give uh, either a defense of his books or to recant of his writings. Now, before he went, he did some trash talking. You know how, how sports people trash talk? He and the Pope were kind of trash talking each other, and this is what he said before he went to Worms. This shall be my recantation at Worms. Previously I said the Pope is the vicar of Christ. I recant. Now I say the Pope is the adversary of Christ and the apostle of the devil. So you might picture Luther kind of swaggering into worms and ready to have a throwdown. But he goes in, and the, uh, the holy Roman emperor, Charles V, is there. And the cardinals representing the church are there. And his books are on a table. And they call Luther to recant of his writings. And, <laughs> sorry, uh, you know what he said? Yeah, he said, I can't recant. Here I stand. God help me. No. His first response was, can you give me 24 hours to think about this? He said, all right. And he went to his chamber, and he he prayed what some would say a prayer that was his own Gethsemane. Let me, let me read the prayer. Um, he must have written it down because it survived, but here's what he says the day before he recants, or he doesn't recant, of, of his writings. Oh God, almighty God, everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up. And how, how small is my faith in you. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I'm to depend upon any strength of the world, all is over. Thou, my God, help me against all the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beseech thee. Thou should do this by thy own mighty power. The work is not mine, but thine. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace. But the cause is yours, and it is righteous, and it is everlasting. O Lord, help me. O faithful and unchangeable God, I lean not upon man. Whatever is of man is tottering, 
Whatever proceeds from him must fail. My God, my God, dost thou not hear? My God, art thou no longer living? Thou dost but hide thyself. Thou hast chosen me for this work, I know. Therefore, O God, accomplish thine own will. Forsake me not for the sake of my well-beloved Son, of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, and my stronghold. Lord, where are you? My God, where are you? Come, I pray thee. I am ready. Behold me, prepared to lay down my life for your truth, suffering like a lamb, for the cause is holy, and it is your own. I will not let you go. No, nor yet for all eternity. And though the world should be thronged with devils, and this body, which is the work of your hand, should be cast forth, trodden underfoot, cut in pieces, consumed to ashes, my soul is yours. Yes, I have thine own word to assure me of it. My soul belongs to you and will abide with you forever. Amen. O God, send help. Amen. Do you notice the similarity between the prayer and a mighty fortress? References to Satan, references uh, to the body they may kill. Um, that was always on the forefront of his mind. Okay. So, Luther, the next day, goes back to the trial. And they say, we're giving you an opportunity to recant of your writings. And he says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I'm bound by the scriptures. I have quoted in my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And there's even debate as to whether he actually said, here I stand, as if he was taking a confident stand. Then he closes, may God help me. Amen. But here's the issue. The the analyzers of Luther asked the question, was he a megalomaniac? To think that he was the only one right. The popes were wrong. The councils were wrong. The scholars were wrong. The emperor is wrong. A thousand years of Christendom is wrong. Was he insane to stand alone is the question. Now let me give you the fifth reason people might think he was insane. He almost killed himself in the monastery, and I don't mean suicide here, but by being a monk. He fasted, flagellated, not flagellated, but flagellated himself, had all-night prayer vigils. He, he didn't allow himself the normal allotment of blankets because it was more holy to shiver through the night. In fact, he writes this. I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. 
If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. Now, one practice that Luther was obsessive about was every day going to confession, where he would confess his sins from the previous day. Now, um, there's even one day when he spent six hours in the confessional confessing the sins from the day before. And the, the people hearing the confession were saying, lighten up, Luther. I mean, you're taking this a little too seriously. Sproul writes this, What accounts for Luther's behavior? One thing is certain. Whatever defense mechanisms normal people have to mute the accusing voice of conscience, Luther was lacking. So some would say, oh, so he had a psychological disorder, a, a guilt complex that drove him insane. And again, Sproul says there's a fine line between insanity and genius. And this is where in the chapter Sproul turns and he says what people miss about Luther is before becoming a monk, he was an expert in what? Law. He was studying to be a lawyer. And as a lawyer, he understood that the law is merciless. And God is holy. And God is perfect. So a perfectly holy God, when he gives a law, must give a perfectly holy law. And he must hold us to a perfectly holy standard. And he must punish violators with perfect justice. See, here's our problem. We hear about God's holiness, and we hear about his mercy. We hear about his justice, and we hear about his love. And we mingle it all together, and we think, well, the result is you could just be pretty good to stand before God's law. Where do we get the idea that God's love and God's holiness lowers the law. Now, there is a solution, but the solution is not a lower law. That's what I'd say 90% of the people on the planet think, though. We've heard about this holy God. We've heard about this loving God. Try your best. It'll all work out. Here's what, what Luther, as a lawyer, understood. Luther examined the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Then he asked himself, what is the great transgression? It's a great commandment. What's the great transgression? Some answer this question by saying that the great sin is murder, adultery, blasphemy, or unbelief. Luther disagreed. He concluded 
that if the great commandment was to love God with all the heart, then the great transgression was to fail to love God with all the heart. He saw a balance between great obligations and great sin. So here's the question. If the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, have you done that perfectly? Now, some people say, yeah. Really? I haven't. I fail miserably. You say, "Where are you sure you got to be perfect? Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, which is giving the perfect law. Sermon on the Mount is law. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there is another way to deal with God's law without lowering it. And that is the gospel. That is grace. But Luther was trying to get in, not by grace, but by law, or a mixture of grace and law. Some people say uh, you call that lawspel. Not gospel, but lawspel. Kind of grace, kind of good works, kind of tie it together. Um, Paul addresses this in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law. So if you're trusting in any of your works to get into heaven, okay, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You want to go the law route? The law is merciless. You've got to keep it perfectly. Right? I always like to say judgment by law is more like gymnastics than football. Say, what do you mean? Well, in football, you can be a pretty bad team, and as long as you're a little bit better than another pretty bad team, you win. Right? Doesn't matter if you fumble and you throw interceptions and you miss blocks. And as long as you're a little bit better than the other guy, you still win. You get a W. Right? Gymnastics, on the other hand, is you're really not competing against other people. You're competing against a perfect standard in the minds of the judges. So... You know, when they do that, the one that amazes me is the girls who do the, the balance beam and they're doing flips and all that. And pff, I would be so dead. To, to <laughs> just would hurt to your feet, you know, to walk on that thing. Um, but let's say you do a lot better than your opponent, but you're really not going against your opponent. You're going up against a perfect 10 in the minds of the judges. So what a lot of people do is they go, oh, I'll be good on judgment day. Compared to my neighbor, I'm doing pretty good. What does that have to do with it? Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself perfectly your entire life? 
And Luther saw that truth while most others did the compromise, the approximation day of judgment. You know, um, we've been studying the Ten Commandments on Wednesday nights. Let's do a quick run through. You shall have no other gods before me. You know, uh, Jesus talks to a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler says, what do I got to do to get into heaven? And Jesus kind of reads his heart. And he says, let me ask you a question. How are you doing with the commandments? And you remember his response? He says, oh, the commandments. I've kept them since I've been a small child. And Jesus goes, and this is, this is my paraphrase of his thinking, you have. You've kept them all? Let me, let me just test the first one. Go sell all your, I know you're rich, go sell all your, what you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Since, since God is number one, that should be no problem for you. And he walked away sad. Point. He was a good guy. He was a, probably a synagogue ruler. But his God was his money. For some people, their God is their reputation. Their God is their business. Their God is their addiction. Their God is, you name it. All right? That's number one. You've got you to gotta love God with all your heart all the time, not one exception. You should not make for yourself an idol. And I always like to point out that idol, we think of idols as little statues, little metal statues. And I always like to point out idolatry is not just metal. It's mental. It's It's saying, I will worship the true God and I will worship him how he has revealed himself in Scripture. You know, back to the person who said, I don't want to study the holiness of God. Now, maybe maybe he's been brainwashed into thinking that church should be about, you know, just practical tips. There's a lot of people who think that that's that's what brings them in. Right? Let's build the church on practical Oprah tips. But I wonder how many people would say, I don't want to study the holiness of God because it's uncomfortable. It, it's going to hurt. So can we, can we study the grace of God? Can we study the love of God? Well, what about the holiness of God? What about the wrath of God? If you're lopsided on one side and you don't see the other side, you're committing idolatry because you're worshiping a God in your mind who isn't real, right? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. I always can tell when somebody's truly saved, and and the language may not clear up right away, but you can't Take the name of Jesus who died for you and bled for you on the cross and sling it around as a swear word. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now this is one we get in a big discussion. Is that still for today or is that 
Uh, has that been replaced? And bottom line, I say we, the, the, at least the New Testament equivalent would be don't forsake gathering together with believers. Right? Ah, if I feel like it, I'll go. If I'm too busy, a, a disregard for God and gathering with his people. How, how does that honor God? Honor your father and your mother, kids. How are you doing with that one? Perfectly, you do that. And in prayer time this morning, a lot of us are talking about our older parents. How do we honor them in their elder years? You shall not murder. You go, finally, one that I can keep. Right? But then in the Sermon on the Mount, we read, if you have anger in your heart, you're a murderer. If you're an angry person, you're full of murder. You should not commit adultery. Yep, never done that. Then Jesus says, if you look after a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. You shall not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? Paperclip from work? Money that should go to the IRS? Somebody's reputation through gossip? You shall not give false testimony. Do you lie? And then on top of that, you shall not covet. You shall be totally satisfied with the the lot in life God has given you. Going around being discontent is a violation of God's standard. So, how'd you do on that test? Uh, God's law is unrelenting. If you want to get in by your own law keeping, you have to keep all of these perfectly without one slip up your entire life. That's the salvation by law plan. And and Luther, he was under the impression that salvation was a mixture of grace and works, of what Christ did and sacraments. But think about this. If I have to get God's grace, even through sacraments, I better do them right. Which is why when you go to confession, you better remember and repent of every sin. We had pictures of the baptisms uh, from the anniversary up here. And I I think, um, I think maybe I didn't get all of Madison's hair under the water. (laughs) I, but I, then I drip some on top. But, but if you're saved by baptism, you better, is it sprinkling? Is it full immersion? Do you, you, can, you better get it right because eternal damnation is hanging in the back. See, Luther is saying when you mix works with grace, it nullifies grace. And, and you better obsess about your works.
Right? Well, the thing I don't understand is people who go to a works-based system, who buy into a works-based system, how can they sleep at night? Luther couldn't. But Luther was a scholar, and he was to teach through some of the books of the Bible. And as he was studying Romans, he came across verse 16, chapter 1, 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So it's talking about the gospel. And in verse 17 it says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. All right? Now, he always took the righteousness of God to mean God's holiness, God's perfection, God's justice. And he hated the righteousness of God because it condemned him to hell. He hated this verse. He was reading Augustine on Romans, and it hit him. This, the righteousness of God, is a summary verse for the whole letter. And it's referring to the righteousness that's revealed in the gospel. And what he discovered is that the righteousness revealed in the gospel is is righteousness of God given to us as a gift, not earned by us. So, for example, Romans 3.26 talks about Christ's crucifixion. It was to show his, God's righteousness, at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the cross is about God's righteousness so that God can remain perfectly just. What does that mean? That he has a perfect standard, he holds us to a perfect standard, and punishment must be given to sinners. But there can be a substitute. And that's what Jesus did. He went to the cross. The cross, Christ in our place, allows God to still be just and the justifier, the one who declares us just. Not by a legal fiction, but by giving us the righteousness of Christ. Right? Romans 4, 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Luther understands that phrase, the righteousness of God in Romans and in the gospel, is a gift. It's a gift of righteousness. It all changed as he understood Romans 1.17. And this is what he wrote. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners 
And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at the place most uh, ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. What did he mean by the righteousness of God? At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night. And by the way, sometimes you got to do that with Scripture. You got to beat on it. You got to think about it. You got to walk the dog thinking about it. And you, you got to meditate on it. Right? Meditate day and night. I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. There I began to understand this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, the passive righteousness with with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. He was born again. He was set free by understanding the righteousness of God is a gift. Now, Here's how, how Sproul ends his chapter. And this answers the question, how can, was he a megalomaniac? One man standing up against popes and councils and kings? How could one man do that? He writes this. Once Luther grasped Paul's teaching in Romans, he was reborn. The burden of his guilt was lifted. The crazed torment was ended. This meant so much to the man that he was able to stand against pope and council, prince and emperor, and if necessary, the whole world. He had walked through the gates of paradise and no one was going to drag him back. Luther was a Protestant who knew what he was protesting. Was Luther crazy? Perhaps. But if he was, our prayer is that God would send to this earth an epidemic of such insanity that we too may taste of the righteousness that is by faith alone. Let's pray. Lord, we glory not in Luther, but in your gospel. Gospel where wicked sinners can be declared righteous because of your life and your death. A gospel where we trust in Christ and we are declared perfect. Not because we are, but because you are. So Lord, may we truly embrace the gospel with all our heart and may we take a stand on it so the world can't shake us. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.